Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Ship Show. Well, on Friday, we got the non-farm payroll report. And of course, this jobs report is the most important jobs report ever because it was going to determine whether or not the Federal Reserve would raise interest rates at its September meeting. Now, of course, I don't think the Fed was going to raise interest rates in September, regardless of what this jobs number was. It's just that so many people were convinced that it was going to happen just because several Fed officials said it was possible. Well, a lot of things are possible, but it doesn't make them probable. And neither is a rate hike for no other reason other than we have an election coming up in November and they don't want to take a chance of a repeat of what happened after the last rate hike in December, given how weak the market was in January. The last thing the Federal Reserve wants to do is hand that present to Donald Trump. So I think all this speculation about a September rate hike was a bunch of noise. I mean, I think it makes more sense to believe in a December rate hike, although I still think that that rate hike is also very improbable, just a little bit more believable than that the Fed was going to pull the trigger before the election, because after the election, it really doesn't matter because there's four years until another presidential election. But before I get to the jobs number that came out on Friday, I want to talk about some of the numbers that came out on Thursday, because we got some very, very uh, big numbers, all of them bad. 
And I think the markets would have had a much bigger reaction to these numbers were it not been been for the specter of the jobs number that was going to come out the following day. Because in many cases, it doesn't really matter what the economic data is. All that matters is what the Fed says relative to that data. So nobody can actually think for themselves if they see horrible data, they don't even conclude anything because they're waiting for the Fed to tell them what to think. But we got uh, productivity numbers for the third quarter, uh, the uh, or the second quarter, rather, of uh, 2016. This was the final revision. And initially it was reported at down 0.5. And now they made it slightly worse, down 0.6. So just adds insult to injury. Remember, I talked about this before. This is the third consecutive quarterly decline in productivity that hasn't happened since 1979 right that was when jimmy carter was president that's how far back you have to go to find a period of three consecutive drops in uh productivity and you know what we might get a fourth consecutive drop that might be unprecedented i wonder if you have to go back to the great depression we'll see what happens if we print a a fourth consecutive decline you know if you add up the magnitude of this decline this is the biggest drop in productivity since 1993 and we may not have stopped falling because obviously we'll see what happens in the in the third quarter because we easily could uh, see another drop but it got worse we also got the ism manufacturing number now the prior month in july We had had a bounce back, and everybody was excited about that. We were up at 52.6, and people were looking for another number, you know, north of 50, 52.2. A little bit of a decline, but not much. Instead, the index collapsed all the way down to 49.4. That's a horrible number. Anything below 50 indicates contraction. So this was a huge miss, a big disappointment, and we got other disappointing data, too, that came out. The PMI manufacturing index was worse than expected, as was construction spending, which was supposed to rise six-tenth. It was flat. In fact, construction spending has been very weak, especially if you look at it on a year-over-year basis. In fact, Whenever you see this big drop in construction spending or whenever it's happened in the past, it always signaled recession. In fact, you have all these things that are happening now that only happen either when the economy is already in recession or about to go into one. Yet nobody seems to care because the Fed keeps talking about how great things are. And so everybody ignores all the evidence to the contrary just because the Federal Reserve is putting a rosy spin on everything. And I don't know why people still haven't figured out that the Federal Reserve is not about reporting reality. They are there as a cheerleader. They're there to try to instill confidence in the economy and in in themselves, their own institution. If the Fed actually sees a problem on the horizon... They will never warn you about it, right? If you're going towards the edge of a cliff, they're never going to say, hey, there's a cliff. You know, we're headed for a cliff. They're hoping we don't get there. They're hoping for some kind of miracle, or they're hoping if they can convince you that the cliff isn't there, that somehow it won't be. 
that you can magically just uh, you know move move beyond it. That's their whole game plan, right? The Federal Reserve in 2005 and 2006 was very optimistic, even though we were about to go over the edge of a financial cliff. And I pointed this out. Alan Greenspan, or not, or not Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, has admitted that he was a lot less optimistic than he led people to believe because of his job as being a member of the administration or the way he described it. So I don't know why people think the Fed is any different now. New, there's a lot of bad news out there, but don't expect the Federal Reserve to say, oh, my God, things are really bad. We're headed to recession because they're also afraid of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't want to talk us into a recession. They're trying to talk us out of one. It's not going to work. It's never worked in the past, but that doesn't mean that they're going to give up trying. But even though we got all that bad news that came out yesterday, the dollar didn't go down that much. It went down a little bit. Gold was only up about, I don't know, five, six bucks. I mean, it should have been up a lot more because that economic news, the news that we got on Thursday, if you actually believed that the Fed might hike rates in September, following that spat of really, really bad economic news, and it was really bad, you would have to say, okay, they're not going to go. Just based on that, this is that was bad enough. Forget about whatever the jobs numbers were, but nobody cared. No, 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 we got to wait for these job numbers because that's what the Fed tells us they care about. They don't really talk too much about these other numbers. But of course, the Fed has been talking about jobs for years. And we've had plenty of superficially strong non-farm payroll reports, and the Fed has had plenty of opportunity to raise rates as a result of those reports, yet they haven't done it. In almost two years, we've had one rate hike. Remember, they were talking about hiking rates all 2015, and they only raised them once, and they've been talking about it all 2016, and now we're in September, and they haven't raised rates at all. Yet we've had plenty of jobs numbers over the last almost two years that have been much better than expectations, yet none of them has resulted in a rate hike. Why? Because it doesn't matter about these jobs numbers. The Fed just wants to keep pretending that they're getting ready to raise rates. And for some reason, everybody keeps believing that that's exactly what they're going to do. Now, you know, the gold stocks did get a bounce yesterday from this. I think uh, in general, the GDX and XAU were up maybe three and a half, four percent ish. So it's a pretty good rally on Thursday. But again, not nearly as big as it should have been. I think it was the jobs number that everybody was worried about. Oh, what if it's a good jobs number? See, then all this bad economic news won't matter because if we get a strong jobs number, the Fed is going to raise rates. And what was the expectation? Well, 275,000 jobs is what they were looking for. They were also looking for the unemployment rate to drop. The official unemployment rate, right? Not the real unemployment rate. That was supposed to drop from 4.9 to 4.8. Average hourly earnings, that was supposed to rise by 0.2. And the average work week was supposed to hold steady at 34.5, which was the way it was originally reported for the prior month. Now, let me give you the bad news. So the headline number was 151,000 jobs versus expectations of 175,000. Now, they did revise the prior month upward from 255 to 275, 
but that was a 20,000 increase, but they revised the month before that down by 21,000. So the revisions subtracted 1,000 jobs. But the consensus was for 175,000 new jobs, and we only got 151,000. So that was below. Now, the unemployment rate, instead of dropping to 4.8, it held steady at 4.9. But it gets worse as you start going to the other numbers. First of all, private sector payrolls, they were supposed to come in at 179,000. They only came in at 126,000. So a much bigger miss when it comes to the private sector, which means we got more jobs from government. But those are not the jobs we want. Those government jobs are not only not productive, but they generally get in the way of the people who are productive. So the more government jobs we have, the less productive the private sector jobs are. And of course, those are the jobs that really count. Labor force participation, that held steady at a very low 62.8. But here's where it gets really bad. Average hourly earnings came in at just 0.1 increase as opposed to the 0.2. But hours worked, instead of holding steady at 35.4, went down to 34.5 last month. So instead of holding steady at 34.5, they went down to 34.3 and Last month, they went down. They revised the 34.5 to 34.4. So we have a couple of months now of back-to-back declines in hours worked. So you have people working fewer hours, yet only earning a little bit more for each hour they work. So if you add all these numbers up, right, you look at this. This was the slowest growth in weekly earnings since early 2014. But on a year-over-year basis, this was the smallest increase in weekly earnings in over six years because Americans are working fewer hours and they're not getting a pay raise. Now, also what happened is that the number of Americans who are working multiple jobs increased by 201,000. That's a big jump. And what does that mean? That means more people who have a job are getting another job. And if they have one job and they get another job, that means they've got part-time jobs. And that also helps explain why people are working fewer hours is because they're working part-time jobs. And, of course, they're not earning a lot of money in those part-time jobs. And, in fact, about 22.5% of the jobs created were in food and beverage Right, waiters and, and bartenders, 22.5%. And then if you add government workers, you got better than 40% of these jobs that were created. And a lot of them are part-time and low-paying. They're either working for government or they're serving food and drinks. In fact, I was reading this article uh, on Zero Hedge just about the the big increase in the number of waiters and bartenders relative to manufacturing. And the article points out that since 2014, the U.S. has added 520,000 jobs for waiters and bartenders, and we've lost 13,000 jobs in the manufacturing sector. And the article is posturing that, you know, maybe these waiter and bartender jobs don't actually exist because the article focuses on the fact that, wait a minute, people are actually going out to restaurants in fewer numbers, right? 
restaurants are having a tough time in 2016. And look at a lot of the restaurant stocks. They're all reporting the fact that people are not eating out as often as they used to. And so if fewer people are eating out, why is it that, you know, restaurants need need more waiters? You figure they would need fewer waiters if they if they're having a, you know, a downturn in business because people are too broke to go to a restaurant, instead they're eating at home. You know, why are they hiring all these waiters? And the article is saying, well, probably when when they go and revise it later, they're going to admit that this was all a mistake and that, you know, they didn't get all these jobs. And I think the article is missing the overall point. And this is what makes perfect sense. Restaurants are transitioning from full-time waiters and bartenders to part-time. So it's not that there's 520,000 new people working as waiters. A lot of those people were already working as waiters, except they worked for one restaurant. So they had one job. But when their employer cut back their hours because of Obamacare or other uh, problems with having full-time workers, and now that waiter had to get another job as a waiter, it doesn't mean there's more people who are waiting tables or just waiting them at different restaurants. You got each waiter has two or three jobs. That's what's going on. That's where all these new jobs are coming from. Yeah, now, sure, there are some net people that are getting jobs in this, but I bet that a lot of people are actually losing jobs because the minimum wage has got to be taking its toll on that you know, occupation. There's got to be a lot of people that because of the minimum wage are losing their jobs. It's just that you've got so many waiters that are getting a second and third job to replace the fact that they used to have one full-time job and their hours have been cut. So that's why you're seeing this big increase in, in those numbers. It has to do with the, the transition of the economy from full-time to part-time work, not that all of a sudden we have a hiring binge going on at restaurants. But what is real is the loss of manufacturing jobs, and that is a huge problem because not only are these manufacturing jobs productive, not only do they help reduce our trade deficit because we can export what's manufactured, but these manufacturing jobs are higher-paying jobs. And the workers that had these jobs were able to spend money on other things uh, like eating out in restaurants, but when your manufacturing base is being eroded and you're losing those higher paying jobs, then a lot of the service sector jobs that fed off of those jobs, well, they're in trouble too. Now, after the jobs numbers came out, the initial reaction was, oh, it's weaker than expected. And we saw a sell-off in the dollar and another rally in gold. I think the highest I saw gold up was about $16 an ounce. So it was a pretty decent rally when you figure it was $16 today and it was up, you know, went another five or six yesterday. So it was better than $20 increase. But then the price of gold sold off. I saw it after that. It was up maybe only about two bucks at the low. And the dollar actually turned around. And I think it happened because Goldman Sachs came out. And they said, you know, the jobs number is just good enough for a September hike, right? That it's not a great report, but it's not bad enough to take the hike off the table. And so they still thought there was a good chance of a September hike. And I think that's what turned the sentiment because the dollar index went positive and you had gold selling off. But what is uh, Goldman Sachs smoking to think that this is going to make the Fed raise rates because if they were going to raise rates based on such a bad number they would have already raised them i mean because this was a bad jobs report the average hourly earnings were bad 
the you know the the the, the labor force participation rate. This was not a good report. You know, the, the the more you dig beneath the surface, the worse the report looks. So if this is still good enough for the Fed to raise rates, then they, they would have already raised them, especially when you see all the bad news that came out on Thursday. The economy is now in worse shape. Remember, Janet Yellen said that the case for a rate hike had increased over the last couple of months. Well, based on this week, whatever that the odds were, they've just gone the other way. All of a sudden, we've got a lot of bad economic data. If the Fed is data dependent, if they're just looking at the data, we just got a pretty a run of really weak data, including the jobs report. So clearly, if the Fed is nervous and data dependent, they would move based on, on this report. They might want to wait for another report to see if this trend is, is confirmed once again. And of course, you're always a report away. Right. If you're never going to raise rates until you're positive, everything is great. How are you going to raise rates? Because there's always something that can happen. Right. You can always get a bad number and then you're not sure. You know, you get another bad number. And then if you get a good number, well, OK, well, are we sure that this is really good? Maybe we need to see two or three good numbers in a row to make sure that this is not an aberration or a one time event. And then before you know, it, you got another bad number. Now you're worried again. I mean, the whole thing is nonsense to say we're going to make monetary policy from, you know, monthly data release, especially when these data points that come out, they could be revised so massively in the exact opposite direction. You figure the Fed would already know what they're going to do. And in fact, I do. They're not going to do anything. That's why they haven't done it. You know, if the, if the Fed was confident in this recovery, they would have raised rates years ago. The fact that they didn't do it, the fact that they've only raised them once in the last couple of years is proof that the Fed knows how screwed up the economy is. Because otherwise, why would rates still be this low? I mean, even if you thought the economy was growing slowly, I mean, how can the appropriate level of interest rates be a quarter of 1% or a half of 1%? I mean, remember... Alan Greenspan, after the bursting of the dot-com bubble and after the September 11th uh, attack, and all of a sudden we're going to war, and the, the Nasdaq collapsed, he only lowered rates to 1%. That was as low as he dared go. And he didn't leave them there. I mean, it was like a couple of years, and then he started raising them. Quarter point every time they met. I mean, the Fed raised them a quarter point once, you know, and it's in, in, in over a year and a half. So clearly, clearly, the Fed is very worried about the economy. And the proof is they've raised rates once. It doesn't matter that they keep talking about their intention to raise rates. That's just to distract us from the idea that they can't, right? Because they have to keep talking as if they can raise rates. Because the one thing they can't do is actually raise rates. But since they can't admit that, they have to keep talking as if they can. So Goldman Sachs comes out there and get it. People believe him. Well, the rally, at least in the gold, that decline didn't last because gold reversed. It never quite got to back up 15 or 16, but it closed the day up about 11 bucks. I think 1325. Gold really held, I think, that 1300 level quite well. 
And I think that's the new support. You remember 1,200 for a while was support. Now it's 1,300. We keep moving the support level up. I think the gold stock correction, and we've had a pretty good correction in gold stocks, even though the correction in gold has been very, very shallow, indicating some real strong buying in the physical market. We did have a much bigger correction in the gold stocks, but gold stocks, again, very strong today. I think both the GDX and the XAU were up about 3.5% or a little bit more. So the two-day rally now in gold stocks is better than 7% between Thursday and Friday. And so I think the correction is over. Silver had a much stronger day. It actually closed up 57 cents, 1942. Very, very strong day. And in fact, even when gold sold off to only up about 2 bucks, I think silver was still up maybe 30 cents. So silver was very, very strong. And to me, again, it looks like the uh, the correction is over, and I think we'll start to see more people moving money back into the mining sector now that I think for most people, other than maybe Goldman Sachs, the specter of a September rate hike is pretty much gone to the extent that anybody actually believed it in the first place. And I certainly think the fear of a September hike uh, was a big factor in that correction in gold stocks. I think to the extent that people were afraid of it, that's no longer out there. But I do think that you still think, have people that believe that there's a very good chance that the Fed is going to raise rates in December. And I'm confident that by the time December rolls around, even though the election will be in the past, the recession will either be in the present or clearly in the immediate future. And I don't think the Federal Reserve will have to maintain the pretense that everything is great. I think by then they may be able to acknowledge some of the problems and stop stop talking about rate hikes and start talking about rate cuts, start talking about stimulus. Because I think we're going to get a lot more bad economic news between now and December. And of course, the election is bad news no matter how you slice it because it doesn't really matter who wins. I think it's going to be interpreted as a negative. And so I think the election itself is a negative. But once the election results are in, then I think the Fed is free uh, to be a little bit less political in the short run and do more what they want to do, which is try to stimulate the economy by printing money, because this is what these clowns actually believe. I mean, go back and and and, and if you haven't, as a result of my last podcast, listen to what these idiots were telling these protesters uh, from the fed up guys uh, at the Jackson Hole, how they you know they think that they can help the economy and the things that they do for all their talk about raising rates. What these guys really want to do is, is cut rates and print money because that's how they think they stimulate the economy, right? They, they, don't want to, they don't want to take the punch bowl away. They want to be the life of the party. They want, they want to serve up a whole brand new punch bowl, and they're waiting to do it. And I think that's what's going to happen. So I think the people who are thinking that, well, if we don't have a rate hike in September, we're going to have one in December— I think they're completely wrong. I think if we don't raise rates in September, which I don't think we will— I think by December, it's too late because by then we're that much deeper into recession. And maybe that's when uh, the government will come back and revise some of these numbers and finally acknowledge after the fact that the economy has, in fact, already slipped into recession because so much of the anecdotal evidence already suggests there's a recession. But nobody wants to admit that. Certainly the Federal Reserve doesn't want to admit it now. 
Obama doesn't want to admit it. Wall Street doesn't want to admit it. They want to pretend that everything is is good. So there's really no there's no constituency out there that benefits from acknowledging the truth. Although once we get the election out of the way and it's clear that the economy is in trouble, they're going to try to help it. But of course, again, like I said, when the Federal Reserve tries to help the economy, it's the equivalent of throwing a drowning man an anchor because all their help simply undermines the economy even further. That's what these guys haven't figured out. They don't realize that the reason that we've had seven years of no real economic growth is because their policies have prevented it. They've been too worried about making sure we don't have a recession. And by making sure we don't have a technical recession, they've also made sure we don't have a recovery. You see, if the Fed had simply allowed the economy to contract more, Right. Hey, just let the recession run its course, even if it means it's going to be deeper, at least when it's done. Now we can have real recovery. We can have real economic growth, forgetting about one and a half or two percent. We can have five, six percent economic growth if we just had a real contraction. But instead of allowing a real contraction, we have a phony contraction because the Fed comes in and interferes. And then you get the last seven years. And this is just the beginning. Because it's going to get worse from here. Because during this period of time, by keeping interest rates so low for so long, the amount of damage that's been done to this economy is unprecedented. I mean, nobody has ever taken this big a dose of monetary heroin in history. And we have plenty of examples of what happens when the Fed, you know, does this to us. We have the housing bubble and the financial crisis that followed that. This is so much worse. Magnitude is greater than what Greenspan did. So this is going to be really the mother of all uh, hangovers when this stimulus you know, wears off, which is why they can't allow it to happen, which is why they didn't even attempt to normalize interest rates, though they spoke about it. You see, Alan Greenspan actually thought he could do it. He raised interest rates and actually thought it would work out all right. We know it didn't, right? It produced a financial crisis. So now Yellen won't even dare attempt to normalize rates, but they can't admit that. So they have to keep it out there as if it's actually going to happen, but they keep interest rates you know, at zero. But eventually they run out of time because they run out of credibility. And that's where we are. And we're about to see the consequences of this. We're about to find out that we actually overdosed on stimulus. And the catalyst is going to be the U.S. dollar. And the dollar index still managed to eke out a gain today, I guess, based on those Goldman Sachs comments. The dollar index closed at 95.88, so still below 96, but really based on a one-two punch of weaker-than-expected economic data on both Thursday and Friday, we really should be trading somewhere in the 94s, and maybe we'll get a delayed reaction next week. Of course, it's a holiday-shortened week here in the U.S. because we have the uh, Labor Day holiday on Monday, uh, but uh, the rest of the world will have a couple of days to react to this data. And I would imagine that the dollar's got to be rolling over here. And we're going to get more negative economic data. The question is, is the Federal Reserve going to come out and acknowledge it? And you know, the, the answer should be, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter what these guys say, because no matter what they say, they can't really raise rates. They ultimately are going to cut rates. They're going to launch QE4, not because it's going to work, but because it's the only thing they know how to do, 
And that is exactly what they're going to do. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.